Well, the feud between Ted Cruz and Donald Trump is escalating. It started with the release of a new ad supporting Ted Cruz featuring a scantily clad Melania Trump. One of the memorable and messy feuds of the Republican primary began with an ad. A nude picture of Donald Trump's wife Melania pulled from a magazine photo shoot with the words, meet Melania Trump, your next first lady, or you could support Ted Cruz on Tuesday. The ad itself was only meant to appear on Facebook and Instagram, targeting key voters prior to the Utah and Arizona primaries in March, so it might not have drawn much national attention if not for this. Late in the evening on March 22nd, Trump tweeted, Lion Ted Cruz just used a picture of Melania from a GQ shoot in his ad. Be careful, Lying Ted, or I will spill the beans on your wife. Once again, the next evening, Trump took to Twitter, retweeting a photo from a supporter of a frazzled-looking Heidi Cruz adjacent to a fresh and glowing Melania. No need to spill the beans, read text above and below their faces. The images are worth a thousand words. The truth was, the initial offending ad did not come from Cruz's campaign. It wasn't even from one of the few affiliated super PACs officially supporting him. But Trump's threat to spill the beans on Heidi Cruz, whatever that meant, afforded Ted Cruz an opportunity. Donald, you're a sniveling coward and leave Heidi the hell alone. When he gets scared, he screams, he yells, often he curses, and he insults and attacks whoever is standing near him. And you're right, Donald does seem to have an issue with women. Donald doesn't like strong women. Strong women scare Donald. This went on for days. All we could talk about were two candidates for president fighting about their wives. It was, well, I'll just let Senate Poet Laureate Lindsey Graham sum it up. What do you think about this later, latest Twitter dust up over candidates' wives? Can you believe we're talking about that? You, well, it's a good year to be single. Uh, the bottom line <laughs> is when you think you got, can't get worse, hey, guys, knock it off. The world is falling apart. Man up. You've got great wives and great families. Give me a vision, an alternative to winning this war different than Barack Obama. Give me a plan that would lead to the destruction of ISIL. Tell me how we're going to get out of debt. Talk about things that people really care about and knock this crap off because these are serious times and you're not behaving like you want to be president of the United States. You're behaving like you're on a reality TV show. This is Trailhead, a podcast by Real Clear Politics. I'm Rebecca Berg, and in this series, we're exploring the quirky markers on the path to the nominating conventions through some of these standout moments in this year's primary process. So much of running for president is essentially selling a product. Each candidate seeks to highlight his strengths while downplaying his weaknesses. He and his campaign tell you how they will make your life richer and more full. The candidate tries to earn your trust, and if you like what they're selling, you buy the product with your vote. In the primaries, this can be a tricky process. The choice is not as clear as one in a general election, or shall we say between buying Diet Coke and Mountain Dew. Those are two totally different soda products, but a primary is like deciding between Diet Coke, Coke Zero, and Coca-Cola Life. They all taste and look pretty similar, so it usually falls to advertising to draw the key distinctions in the minds of voters. To get a sense of how powerful advertising is in a presidential primary, consider this. The single biggest line item on a campaign's budget is television advertising, 
And that's in addition to digital advertising, radio, you get the picture. Television ads are often the most memorable of these. In the Democratic primary, Bernie Sanders wowed people with a simple TV spot, images from across the country and at his rallies set to the Simon and Garfunkel song, America. Video of the ad posted on YouTube has racked up more than 3.7 million views to date. But every so often, even as millions of dollars are being spent on TV advertising, a guerrilla warfare sort of ad can break through. And such was the case with the Melania Trump ad. At the time, this was surprising for a couple of reasons. First of all, ads had not played the prominent role in this election that they usually do. They were being drowned out by Trump's unique ability to commandeer the news cycle every day. And second, this was no television ad with millions of dollars behind it. It wasn't even a video. It was a low-budget, meme-like photo that suddenly received national media attention and millions of dollars in earned media, all because Trump had tweeted about it. Liz Mayer thought that might happen. I fully expected he would go into meltdown mode over it. Mayer was the brains behind the Melania Trump ad as part of her work with the anti-Trump Make America Awesome pack. So I'd been toying around with doing this ad for a while. My original thought was that this might be a good thing to do heading into Utah and Arizona because of the heavily heavy prevalence of female Mormon voters. Um, some of my family is Mormon um, and in having generally talked to a lot of people uh, who fit that demographic, whether in the context of family or just people out there online, people that I've encountered, um, one of the things that we were cognizant of was that these images, and in particular the image we used, were likely to play very, very, very badly with that constituency. Most of this was instinct, whereas most major campaign messaging or advertising is subjected to focus grouping and polling. The lean budget for Make America Awesome didn't allow for any of that. And on top of that, although Mayor had worked on her share of campaigns as an online communications advisor, she didn't have prior firsthand experience in creating ads. Um, to the extent that I've worked on political campaigns, um, where I've been involved in advertising, usually it, it entails somebody asking me what I think of an ad and me telling them that I don't think that they're being hard-hitting or aggressive or outrageous enough, and that usually results in me being taken off of ad approval sheets pretty quickly. Um, so I actually don't tend to be involved in advertising a great deal. Um, but this was an opportunity to do so because, frankly, you know, when Rick Wilson and the other folks who were involved in the Super PAC and I were putting this together back in, I guess it was probably October of 2015, we just didn't see anybody really much stepping up to the plate to try to combat Donald Trump. And the people that we knew were talking about it we thought we're talking about doing such conventional things that they were unlikely to work against such an unconventional candidate. Um, and so, you know, in this respect, I think that the, the sort of attitude and approach that I have towards advertising worked really well and was suited to this campaign. Mayor's approach draws from her experience working on Carly Fiorina's 2010 Senate campaign, along with Republican ad maker Fred Davis. Davis is known for his, shall we say, offbeat ads. In 2010, he dreamed up the memorable cult classic, Demon Sheep. You know, this one. Tom Campbell, 
Is he what he tells us? Or is he what he's become over the years? A F-C-I-N-O, fiscal conservative in name only. A wolf in sheep's clothing. A man who literally helped put the state of California on the path to bankruptcy and higher taxes. Fiscal conservative? Or just another same old tale of tax and spend, authored by a career politician who helped guide us into this fiscal mess in the first place. Not everyone in political ad making is a fan of Davis's style. It's kind of an acquired taste. But in Mayor's thinking, his approach works. Um, and I think if you go and you look at really the whole body of Davis's work, you'll see that he tends to go for things that are insanely over the top, basically impossible to forget, and imprint your mind and your imagination in such a way that whatever the core message is, even if it only features for a brief blip in the ad, really gets kind of embedded in your subconscious. And it has a tendency to have, I think, sort of a long-term effect over voter decision-making. And we saw that with the Demon Sheep ad. When it came out, it was roundly pilloried and mocked. Um, and I fully expected it to be. Um, I will say that the first 24 to 48 hours after we released that ad, especially given that it was a web-only ad, and I deal with online media, which meant that it was right in my sphere more than anybody else's, um, the first 24 to 48 hours after we released that ad were pretty hellish. <laughs> it, was, it was not fun. We were, we were getting a lot of people who were sending us very negative emails, um, really questioning the, uh, the sort of sense of the campaign and our logic and our thought process. And then we realized after about that first period when we started looking at data that the ad had, had exactly the effect that we wanted it to have. Fast forward to this election cycle, and Mayer took a similar approach to the Melania ad, a little bit of shock value for maximum effect. From knowing that we probably weren't going to be in a position to have, you know, $20 million to spend, and we didn't originally set out to have $20 million to spend, was I wanted to do advertising that would legitimately have a viral effect and would be disruptive in the race. And so I think thinking about that objective, certainly the Melania Trump ad accomplished that goal. I think it was probably the key factor that led to Donald Trump having a very, very bad two weeks uh, both heading into Utah and Arizona and then also heading into Wisconsin. And I, I really do question if we had not run that ad and provoke the kind of response that we did from Donald Trump, whether the result in Wisconsin would have been what it was. That outcome is pretty much the stuff campaign dreams are made of. Run an ad, shift an election. But many political campaigns tend to default to a safe conservative approach, including with advertising. We saw a lot of that in this primary season, even as Trump was using shock value to dominate the news and the race. Suddenly, it was this asymmetrical warfare, as if the British had shown up to the Revolutionary War with drones. I think in general, uh, whether we're talking about donors, whether we're talking about operatives, whether we're talking about voters, there's a lot of fear uh, generally of Trump, but I think also there's a fear of doing things that look outside the box and look outrageous. We have expectations about 
what is the norm in politics and what is sort of standardized behavior, and we kind of expect people to adhere to it. I mean, my argument is that if everybody adheres to that same standard, it's very difficult for people to get ahead. And I think Donald Trump has proved that better than anybody. You know, if Donald Trump had adhered to normal uh, political standards of behavior, I don't think that there's any chance that he would be where he is. But it is challenging because as a candidate, you want to do things in the most conservative and safest way possible. You don't want to take unnecessary risks. That feels scary. That feels like presenting yourself with an enhanced opportunity of losing. Um, and so I think there are always going to be incentives if you're the candidate or you're an operative to steer away from that approach and do what's known and what's comfortable and what's predictable rather than doing the thing that's more unpredictable but could potentially have more upside. The Trump dynamic was a source of acute frustration for Will Ritter, a co-founder of the ad firm Poolhouse, who signed on to work for Marco Rubio's campaign. When you were trying to steer the conversation to places where, you know, you had that Rubio or whoever you're advertising for has kind of a leg up, um, if you were trying to steer it towards legitimate policy discussions uh, and you can't break through or you have to spend a lot more money to break through because you're competing with, you know, a tweet or some, you know, shoddily put together thing or, you know, whatever the, the more interesting shiny object of the day is, um, that is frustrating because the reality is that the appetite of the, you know, consumer here, the American voter, is probably, you know, at the very most, one uh, political story a day, maybe one Republican political story a day. And if that story is silliness that's interesting or it's something about a, you know, uh, a beauty pageant or some other, like, fun drama, that's going to fill that hole. And it's really hard, as we've seen um, very recently, <laughs> it's really hard to push a legitimate message that, Republicans should be talking about, that Americans should be talking about when there's a shinier object, you know, in the way that is, on, is just pure, you know, junk food. That is not to say that Rubio's campaign wasn't working to put out their own metric ton of video and other content for the media to chew on. Ritter says they probably averaged one new video a week. You're trying to get the most positive information flow for your candidate, and if you don't feed uh, the beast of the media, no offense, Rebecca, um, it will eat you. It will, <laughs> it will find something to eat out of your hide. Um, so you can either give them something, which, it, you know, could be video content um, or a TV ad or what, what have you. You can either give them something or you could get eat, eaten, you know, get your shin eaten off. But a constant churn of content isn't as simple as it sounds with the constraints of a presidential campaign. And there are many. In addition to money, one of the limiting resources is the candidate's actual time. Can you give me a sense of how you guys made that work? Um, yeah, well, one's being flexible and nimble and being able to capitalize on opportunities. So there was an idea I think came from uh, actually Wes Donahue at uh, Push Digital. Um, had an idea about top Google searches for Marco Rubio. Um, that kind of went to the whole ad team. Uh, we thought it was great. We happened to have a guy following, uh, we have, we have a, a member of Pool House following Rubio just to get some B-roll in uh, New Hampshire that day, and we turned it into what really went as a, you know, it's cliche, but a viral video about Rubio reading his um, top Google searches off of his phone. 
so, you know, you have to be able to to take um, you have to be able to take those opportunities because, you know, not time with the candidate is not about you know just the pecking order and the campaign or whatnot, but this is an, a, he could be doing a TV interview. That would be free media. He could be talking to voters. He could be making fundraising calls. Um, so it's not like you can just say, hey, let's take, you know, a whole day off the campaign trail and just think of a lot of cool ideas in a studio and have to act them out because, you know, every second is um, precious. And then there's this factor, the candidate himself. If you're an ad maker whose candidate is boring or awkward, whose voice is inexplicably high, your job becomes a lot harder. In this respect, though, Ritter lucked out. You know, we got on board with Rubio thinking that this is, you just, we've got to give Rubio the ball because this guy is enormously talented. Um, you know, he had that same effect um, when you hear, heard him speak that, you know, Obama did. Um, way back when, on the Republican side, and I, I don't mean that in the empty word sense. I mean that in the sense that this is this guy is clearly intelligent. He clearly believes what he want, what he, he's saying, and he's inspirational in itself. So we don't we didn't have to do a lot of tricks. You know, you don't have to get him off camera a lot. You don't have to try to cover it up with a ton of B-roll um, or do silly gimmicks. Uh, you just have to let him. Um, kind of get his message out there, and I think, and you know, his his presence will kind of carry it because he is different. He's different both in his message and in what people have been used to seeing out of you know Republican candidates. But even um, with a baseline good and, candidate, it is still you know, possible to make terrible campaign ads. You know, the textbook straight to camera. I'm going to talk to you about my policies. Ads, those drive Ritter nuts. Would you ever see? Would you ever see a spokesperson uh, look at the camera for 30 seconds and talk to you about a product? I think the only person who's tried it was like Brad Pitt did like a Versace ad, you know, and even that was unwatchable. This is like one of the, the most attractive men on the planet, one of the best actors on the planet, and I couldn't, I couldn't watch that uh, because, you know, that's just not how the, the brain works. So that's a pet peeve. It's, it's just when people, when people rely too much on a script and politicians think of that they just get the words exactly right, that they'll hit a bunch of dog whistles and it'll be a Yahtzee. Nothing could be further from the truth because it's, it's you know, what people take away from it. And, it, and they aren't take, walking away with a report card that says, well, he hit, you know, guns, he hit the military, he hit, you know, religion. So it looks like he's my candidate. <laughs> they, they walk away with, okay, that guy seemed like a, a person who shares my values and that I would know from church. Um, there's somebody I'd know from the neighborhood. And that's, that's a win, not, well, we crammed in 70 words in 30 seconds, and all those words, you know, um, you know are also in, in the stump speech, so looks like we did it. You know, that's not a I, – I, I don't think you can look at that as a win, because so, there's, no, you know, there's no plus, there's no creativity there. And when Ritter talks about creativity in a political ad, here's the kind of thing he means. I'm Joni Ernst. I grew up castrating hogs on an Iowa farm. So when I get to Washington, I'll know how to cut pork. Ritter and his firm were responsible for that memorable ad from Joni Ernst's Senate campaign in 2014. It was a risk, and it paid off. That's something that was just, was just pure creativity and taking a risk, and where most, not most, but where some, you know, older school people 
might look at that and say, what? We're not going to go there. You know, this is a serious ad. We need to talk about, you know, this many issues. Um, you kind of have to take a risk, especially in this media environment, which there's twice as many, two, three times as many political ads on TV now because since Citizens United. Um, so people are getting a lot of information, and honestly, a lot of it's turning into white noise. So in order to not waste money, you have to, if you can get them not thinking that it's a political ad for the, per, for the first three seconds, you have really um, gone farther and you're going you're gonna to stretch your dollar farther because now they're open to that message versus if the first thing they see is a black and white photo of Barack Obama and Nancy Pelosi over a cloudy sky in the Capitol, they are shutting down. And I'm not pulling <laughs> that ad because we've made that ad. But let's be honest. But those boilerplate ads tend to be a lot easier, in part because it's not always simple to engineer a lighthearted, fun, authentic ad starring a candidate. Let's face it, a lot of politicians seem awkward on camera. You know, there's something that happens when that camera goes on that, you know, makes people seem a little stiffer than, than they are. So the challenge is, is really kind of getting people to stop thinking while I'm in an ad and get them to just talk regular. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and then and, and that's what's, so the hardest, the hardest thing in the world is to make it look like you're not trying. I mean, the, the best way to do it is we do a lot of, of uh, interviews with candidates that, are that we're taping the whole thing, but it's kind of a long-form discussion. And instead of like, you know, rehearsing it and saying, well, feed us back this line, they're just talking because you're going to get, these are typically very like, you know, they're politicians for a reason. They're very intelligent, they're charismatic, they're charming. If you can get that and make it look authentic, um, that's, that's the win. With Rubio, Ritter and his team also put him in casual situations, like in one ad where an aide would toss a question and then quite literally throw a football over to Rubio, and he would answer the question and toss it back. What's your fantasy football team name? I've had different names. This year, I think we're gonna call it the Marco Polos. More nervous before first presidential debate or first college football game? I was more nervous before my first college football game because you were actually going to get hit. No one was going to hit me at the debate. The ad aired during football games, and in Ritter's mind, it was the best work they did all cycle. This thing is not one where uh, the viewer at home has a voter card in front of them and they're checking off, you know, you hitting certain policy issues. You know, that's <laughs> part of it. But a big, let's be honest, a big part of it is whether or not you get the right feeling from a guy or, or um, a gal running for office. The, you know, it, this was distilled uh, in the George W. Bush, I want to have a beer with him um, kind of concept, where before somebody will be open to listening to your platform and your ideas, they have to initially just like you and think that you're a decent person. So the football ad kind of went off of the idea that, um, you know, I, I mean, when it comes from, from childhood, if, if you want to, if you're going to, you know, talk to somebody, it'd always be better to be throwing a ball back and forth. And then there was another ad where Rubio drove up in a car, got out, started walking, and the camera follows him with someone off camera asking him questions. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? What's up? Hey, you might be asking a couple questions? Yeah, go ahead. First thing you thought of this morning? What time is it? <laughs> Twitter or Facebook? Twitter. Dinner with anyone dead or alive? Um, God. Jesus. Yeah, and that was from that was from um, you know that was a Vanity Fair idea. 
um, they were doing that and, and getting tremendous success. I, I mean, there was one with Sarah Jessica Parker that kind of got us all thinking about that um, because she seemed so cool and just like, oh, hey, you know, like you just caught me. Hey, neat. And, of course, there was some scripted lines in her thing, I, I imagine, but the point was it seemed authentic. It seemed real. It seemed like I kind of knew a little bit more about Sarah Jessica Parker or Marco Rubio in this sense. Um, than if he had, you know, if we'd put a fireplace behind him and he had just totally nailed, you know, the the talking points for the day, you know, it, it, it wouldn't have been as effective. At the same time that Ritter was looking for fresh, creative ways to tell Rubio's story, other campaigns were doing the exact same thing, innovating and experimenting, some of them to great effect. You know, I think of the Ted Cruz ad where they were, they were the lawyers and accountants were, crossing the Rio Grande, and it was kind of an uh, illustration of his uh, bit that he did in his stump speech, as it, you know, and that was happening over his, the audio of his stump speech. I thought that was one of the best ads of the cycle. That was fantastic because that, that kind of hit all the marks. But, you know, you walked away and, you, you know, you can remember um, that ad. Um, I mean, that, was the, that was the right kind of creativity. The thing is, I've spoken with a number of people, in politics and not, who have complained about how boring political ads were this primary season. No big risks, nothing memorable. In retrospect, though, did we just feel this way because Trump was constantly setting a new standard for political entertainment? Were we just not paying close enough attention? Ritter, for his part, thinks That's this true. was a stellar season for political around. advertising, and not just his own. Especially the ads that came from the candidate uh, this cycle were of the best quality I've seen. And, you know, also on the Democratic side, we've seen some really good stuff from guys like Mark Putnam, et cetera, on the Democratic side. And I think the stuff that's come from the candidate is, is really up in their game. It looks more authentic. It looks less like rehearsed. Um, they, they really, you know, they're, they're getting actual B-roll, they're getting actual authentic looking stuff, um, or they're having like really creative and neat ideas. So I think that, I think in that sense, it's been the best. Um, I think what we saw the limits of um, was super PACs. Uh, I mean, they have a role to play, but the idea that, you know, the campaign's not going to advertise and, and um, you know, and we'll just let a super PAC kind of come in and, and bomb the airwaves. Um, you know, I think that there are limits to that as well. And of course, on super PACs, you're limited by coordination, what you can use. And, you know, nothing is as powerful as, as hearing it from the candidate, what they believe. You know, when you see a Marco Rubio ad, and it ends with, I'm Marco Rubio, and I approve this message, you know that this was an attempt by the Marco Rubio campaign to define him or define the race. Um, when you see Americans for America put out some <laughs> lightning bolt scariness with Nancy Pelosi and, you know, these old school, you know, liberal, you know, these old school attacks on, on Democrats or Republicans on the other side, and then it's, they, don't know, they don't know where it's coming from, and it's the equivalent of, you know, of graffiti on a bathroom stall. Like, if it just says somebody stinks, you know, okay, says who? I don't know. I'm not going to, am I going to actually think that, that person stinks now because I saw that four times on a bathroom stall? No, it's because I'm not giving a lot of credence. But Trump might have done more than anyone or anything to show the limits of advertising. As he was trampling all over some of the creative, beautiful ads being put out by losing campaigns, did he tell us something about political advertising that we've been missing? The idea that, you know, that's changed advertising. 
um, that's changed Republican politics. You know, I think that that is that's overdoing it. I think we have a guy who's is you know it's a once every fifty year phenomenon. But if other candidates are looking at this, thinking, oh, I guess I don't have to do any advertising. I can just light my hair on fire. Uh, I think that they're going to be met with a lot of failure because Donald Trump was, you know, did have kind of a perfect storm where there aren't people who start um, presidential races with 100% name ID, uh, instant credibility for strange reasons with the base, um, and the ability to command a news cycle because, honestly, he was going places that other decent candidates would not do. Um, so if, you know, if somebody said, well, I don't need advertising anymore, I'd say, okay, well then you have, I hope you have a hundred percent name ID, your own money, and you are willing to go out and say things that are, would be seen as indecent or downright shameless, uh, in order to get media attention. If you're prepared to do that, yeah, maybe you don't need advertising, <laughs> but every, all the rest of us mortals do. But sometimes, getting a message out can also take a little help from your friends. Next week on Trailhead.